This message was given at Des Moines Campus Fellowship Summer Leadership Training back in 2019. The theme that summer was typology, studying the Old Testament through the lens of Christ. Pastor Tom Brown focuses on the Old Testament figure, Abraham. We hope you find this encouraging. I'll tell you a quick story about my drive here. I got onto the highway, I got a rental car, and I've got a forerunner they gave me. And it's got a big, solid windshield. I got onto the highway, and this bird kind of flittered in front of the windshield and then turned right at me and bounced off of the windshield. I turned to the side and watched the body roll to the side. Now, if, you, if that bothers you, I just, I love birds. It bothered me, too. And, and yet... Um, it was a moving moment for me, and here, I'll tell you why. This is just going to confuse you. Stick with it. It'll make sense in a minute. Um, a few years ago, my father passed away. I was in the hospital room, and I didn't make it before he died, so I was just there in the room, and his body was there, and, and I had prayed for things, and I had expected some things that just never happened, and I was confused and praying, God, what's going on? I don't understand. And then almost like audibly, Matthew 10, 29 came into my world in that moment. Jesus was speaking about anxiety, and he said, listen, two, two sparrows are sold for a penny, and yet not one of those little birds will fall to the ground and die apart from the care of our Father in heaven. And then he said, you're worth more than many sparrows. And it, it came into my, my world when I was there with my dad, and, and it was God speaking to me saying, you don't understand, but this did not happen outside of my care. And shortly after that, I was driving a few days later down a road in Kansas, and, and I was just overcome with, with grief and confusion, and I was like, God, just give me a sign that you're here and you love me, and guess what happened? Sparrow came flying out of nowhere and slammed into the windshield and died. And, and I just started bawling because I was like, God, you're here. And um, so me and God have this thing that like when I need, when I need to pick me up, God sends a bird to the windshield <laughs> and kills a bird for me. Now, some, some of you are like, I'm done. I'm not even listening to anything else this guy says. I'm sorry. I really love birds too. God, just think about it for a minute though, that, that God who created everything, he, he knows every little bird on the planet. Nothing happens to any little bird on this planet apart from his care and his will. And he says to us, how much more do I care about you? How much more do I know Jacob and his life and the things that are giving him anxiety. I care about you. God is with us tonight, and isn't that an amazing thing? It's an amazing thing that he's with us. He knows your life, and he wants to speak to you. We have access to his word. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 22 tonight. We're going to talk a little bit about Abraham. So turn with me. I believe Dan lay down the law that everyone's got to have a Bible in front of them. So we're going to keep that law going tonight, if you don't mind, to get a Bible out. We're going to be in Genesis 22. I'm going to talk a little about how to read the Bible, 
how to understand hard things in the Bible tonight. Chapter 22, we're going to pick up in the life of Abraham. Most of you are familiar with Abraham. If not, Abraham was a guy we don't really know anything about until early on in the book of Genesis. We have the account of God appearing to him and telling him, Abraham, I want you to leave everything you know and go to the place where I send you. And Abraham said, okay. And from that point on, he went on a journey with his immediate family following this God's leading in his life. Gradually, this God begins to give him a series of promises about his life. He tells him that he's going to bless him tremendously. He says, I'm going to give you a land. He says, I'm going to give you offspring. And through your offspring, the whole world is going to be blessed. Your, your seed is going to be like sand on the seashore. And he's got this collection of promises. And the problem is he doesn't have any offspring. He's got this this specific promise. You're going to have a kid. You're going to have a son, and he's going to be the father of many. There's no son. He gets old. His wife gets old. There's no son. Him and his wife decide maybe we're confused about what God has intended here, and Sarah gets a brilliant idea to send her, her maidservant into Abraham's room, and they conceive a child. Ishmael's born, and right away they're like, eh, that doesn't seem right, and then God shows up again, and he says, you don't understand. You and Sarah are going to have a child. Sarah laughs, and God says, your kid's going to be named Isaac because you laughed at this. And then, out of nowhere beyond all hope, they conceive a child, and Isaac is born. And now we pick up in chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham. It's a key phrase we're going to get into. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. So far, I'm connecting with this story. I have three sons. My middle son, Jack, is about to turn 13, and I'm going to take him next month on a trip to Colorado. We're going to climb some mountains. We're going to see some friends. We're going to drive south to see the Great Sand Dunes National Monument. Then we're going to drive to New Mexico to see some family in Albuquerque. We're going to have a great bonding time. And so this seems like probably what Abraham's in for, right? Him and Isaac are going to go bond on the, on the Mount of Moriah, the land of Moriah. Let's keep reading. Go to the land of Moriah and have a 13-year-old bonding trip. Nope, doesn't say that. It says, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This story is turning south very quickly. Offer him there as a burnt offering. That means slit his throat and let all his blood come out of his body and then burn it to ashes. That's what God is telling Abraham to do. Verse 3. It's getting weird. Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now it's really getting weird because Isaac is, or Abraham is doing it. God says, go and take your son, not on a bonding trip, go and kill him. And Abraham says, okay, Lord, and he goes. 
What is happening here? On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Verse 5, then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. What is he lying here? We're going to come back down. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. What do you think is going on in Abraham's mind? When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. If you pause there and just ask that question again, what is going on in this man's head? What's going on in his mind as he's holding that knife in his hands, looking down on his son? I brought a picture to show you. This is a painting by the artist Caravaggio, who paints vividly realistic portraits from the Bible. Look at that image. What is happening in that man's head? He took the knife to slaughter his son, verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven And said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. We should pray. Father, we thank you for the time to be together tonight. Thank you for the love that you have for every soul in this room. And Father, we together we ask you that you would speak to each one of us what you alone know we need to hear. Father, we pray that you would give us understanding and faith and courage to practice what we read tonight. We ask that you would reveal yourself to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So you're having your morning quiet time. You've got your coffee, your journal, You open up Genesis 22 and you read through this passage. What in the world are you going to do with this passage? What application are you going to write down for yourself from this chapter in your journal? 
one way to handle reading this chapter is to say thank you next and slip the page quietly and pretend like nothing ever happened. Just sweep that little weird thing under the rug. Another way you can handle this is to say surely, surely a caring and loving God would never do anything remotely like this. Let's just unhitch this story from the good stuff about Jesus in the Gospels and get rid of the confusion and the hurt that this causes and just get some scissors and cut it right out. Another way to read this is to read it as a story about sacrifice and, and read it with a self-preserving instinct. You guys know what I'm talking about. If you've seen one of those videos on social media, a dad is playing baseball with his kid. He lost the ball to his kid, and then his kid nails a line drive right into his dad's crotch. And, and you guys, when you see that, what do you do immediately? Cross your legs and your hands go down to your lap, right? You're like, not, oh, you, you, preserve, you preserve yourself. <laughs> and, and so you read this. Most of you guys are probably not parents, but people like me that are parents, the first thing we do is, is like, God, not my kid. Not Gabe, God. Not Jack, not Ben, not Lizzie. Or we say, God, not that relationship. God, not that job. God, not that... Don't send me on that mission trip. Don't send me to the third world on missions, God. And we read this and we think God's going to, I know God wants to take away the thing that I love most. And so we, we instinctively protect ourselves from that. I have good news that none of those are necessary as we read this passage. If you read it on multiple layers, you'll understand this passage in an entirely different light than it has often been misunderstood. We're going to, to get into the ground level of, of the people of faith and how we live faith in the raw realities of life and interact with God on our level. But then we're going to zoom out and get the bigger picture for what exactly is happening here. On the ground level, Abraham is a representative for us of faith. In Hebrews 11, he's mentioned twice in the catalog of heroes of the faith. It says that by faith, he offered up his son. So he's an example to us of what faith looks like. There's three things we see about that in this passage. I take these three things from a sermon by Thabiti Anyabwile, whose outline was better than anything I came up with, so... For this section, we're using his outline. Number one, if you're writing, you can write this down. God tests people of faith. God tests people of faith. In verse one, after these things, God tested Abraham. In God's mind, it's clear when you read the scriptures that proven faith is greater than hypothetical faith. If you've ever had a physics class, one way you could say this is that kinetic faith is better than potential faith. God isn't interested in you just theoretically in a vacuum believing him and believing his promises. God is interested in living faith in the real world. God is interested in the kind of faith that has to be lived out in the arena where there is dirt and sweat, and blood, and tears. He's interested in drawing out the depths of our hearts to find out 
what's there. In Deuteronomy 8, 2, he says to the people of God, Remember how the Lord your God led you in the desert these 40 years to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your hearts. God tests the people of faith to draw out what's in our hearts. That takes heat, that takes pain, it takes pressure. And that's just the reality of the Christian life. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ attempting to know the living God, you can expect these moments of testing to draw out what is in your heart. When there's a test, there is a question that has to be asked. What's the question for Abraham that is being tested? I think the answer is in verse 12, where he says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, because I see that you have not withheld your son. So the question is, does this man fear God? Does he take God at his word? Does he reverence and show respect and worship to God or, or to someone else? That's the question. Does Abraham fear God? How do you test that? Well, you put Abraham in a position where he has to do the inconceivable, where he has to believe God's word when everything in him says that it's not true. When everything says God cannot be a loving God, God can't have good plans for you with this circumstance going on in your life. You may have been tested like that. Maybe right now someone in this room is going through that kind of test. You surely will in your life. And the Bible says that's exactly where you should expect to be. Take heart. This is how faith works. The second thing we see is that people of faith obey God in their times of testing. People of faith obey God in times of testing. We saw Abraham unbelievably just says, okay. And immediately he goes early the next morning. He's up and he's going. He obeys quickly. He obeys thoroughly. He gathers all the supplies. He's planned it out. He's specifically going to carry out God's command in as thorough a way as possible. That's just what faith does. In James chapter 2, the story is mentioned in light of an example about, or a lesson about how faith works. In James chapter 2, I'm going to read it from my notes here. James 2, 20 to 24. James says, Do you want to be shown you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. James uses confusing language but what he's doing is complimenting Paul in his lessons about justification by faith. And he says, yes, faith alone saves a soul. But how do you know if that faith is there? If someone says they have faith, the kind of faith that saves, but there's no work, there's no fruit, then what kind of faith is that? It's like dead faith. 
And his, in his illustration he uses is look at Abraham. Abraham was justified by faith alone because he believed, but what did his belief look like? It looked like obedience. It looked like work. The people of faith obey God even in times of testing, even when the world looks at you as crazy. I have friends who believe that they have a sexual orientation which is not going to change and which is not allowed to be expressed by God. And they have therefore chosen in their reverence for God to live a life of celibacy. It is extreme testing for them. And the world looks at them and says, you're crazy. What kind of God would do that to you, And yet in their reverence for God, they say, this is the path I'm choosing because God is worth everything to me. People of faith obey God in times of testing. And the third thing we see on this human level is that God provides for and rewards our obedient faith. At the end of the story, God stops Abraham and then he provides an alternative. There's a ram right there in the thickets and... And he takes the ram and offers the ram in place of his son. God had provided a substitute. And then God says, because you obeyed me by faith and your time of testing, I'm going to pour out my blessings on your life. That's the human level. It's a really vivid example of faith in the arena. But even still, you're probably thinking, but it's just weird. It just doesn't seem right. Listen to what Martin Luther says about this story. I was told as a young Christian, if you want to understand narrative in the Bible, you've got to enter into the story. You've got to feel with your senses the, the setting of the story. You've got to walk through it with the people in the Bible. But who wants to walk through this story? Martin Luther said, I could not have been an onlooker, much less the performer and slayer. It is an astounding situation that the dearly beloved father moves his knife close to the throat of the dearly beloved son. And then he says, we are not moved by these sentiments because we do not desire to feel and experience them. Can you relate to that? Can you relate to reading the story and saying, I'm not entering that story. I'm, I'm avoiding that story like the plague. It just it seems wrong on this very real level. Immanuel Kant, a great philosopher who affected our whole society and, and a lot of what he did determines how we think and act in our world today. Listen to him describe it. He says, we can use it as an example, the myth of the sacrifice that Abraham was going to make by butchering and burning his only son at God's command. The poor child, without knowing it, even brought the wood for the fire. Abraham should have replied to this supposedly divine voice in this way, that I not, ought not kill my good son is quite certain, but that you, this apparition, are God, of that I am not certain and never can be, not even if this voice rings down to me from heaven. What he's saying is reason tells me this is an immoral thing, an immoral thing I'm being told to do, therefore I refuse to do it. That's a sentiment that people who call themselves Christians often 
have about this passage. There's a very famous blogger and writer who said this about the story. She said, this is a hard God to root for. It's a hard God to defend against all my doubts and all the challenges posed by science, reason, experience, and intuition. I am not yet a mother, and still I know deep in my gut that I would sooner turn my back on everything I know to be true than sacrifice my child on the altar of religion. Maybe the real test isn't whether you drive the knife through the heart. Maybe the real test is in whether you refuse. Maybe you can relate to that a little bit. But what's happening when Kant or this writer, when they bring out this knife of reason and say, this contradicts my reason, and so I'm going to eliminate this. This cannot be from God. I refuse to accept this as coming from God. The pastor and author Tim Keller has this really great illustration. Maybe you've heard me share it. He references the movie Stepford Wives. In the movie Stepford Wives, a young couple moves into a neighborhood that's full of wealthy and beautiful people. They're moving up in the world. They're happy to be there. But they realize pretty quickly that there's something wrong with all the wives. They're just too perfect. They're too beautiful. They're too acquiescent to their husbands. Something seems to be off. And so they dig around, and then they realize that all the wives are actually robots because the husbands grew tired of wives who contradicted them. They didn't want independent, smart, powerful women in their homes. And so they just killed their wives and they created these robots which they could program to do whatever they wanted and to never contradict them. And Keller says, don't we do that with God sometimes? We have this relationship if, we, if there is a living God, we ought to expect to be contradicted and challenged like we do in any relationship. But that's uncomfortable for us. We don't like it, so instead we kill off the living God and we create an all-new God in our own image who is much safer and who will never contradict us. That's not a route that I'm willing to go. I don't know about you guys. I prefer a living walk with the living God. So if we hold on to that, if we reject the Stepford God approach of Kant and this woman, what are we left to do with this passage? Do we have to just say, yeah, God's kind of weird and someday he might ask me to kill my son and I guess I have to do it. Like, is that, is that how we have to read this passage? There is, there is something really critical here. Do you guys ever have Transformers, like your older siblings had Transformer toys that had those red strips that you put over the box and you could only read the, the qualities of your Transformer if you put the red strip over the box and then suddenly like it was all clear? There's a red strip that I'm going to show you that's going to change everything that you see in this chapter. It's in Hebrews 11. What you have to understand is that Abraham experienced this story we just read in an entirely different way than you and I did. And here's why. In Hebrews 11, starting in verse 17, we get to answer the question, what in the world was Abraham thinking? Hebrews eleven seventeen, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in, fact, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac 
shall your offspring be named. Stop there for a minute. Abraham knew one thing from God, and that was through Isaac, his name, his offspring shall be named. And remember, he had gone through something that no one in this room has gone through. He successfully conceived a child at 100 years old. Think about that for a minute. He's 100, his wife is 90, and they successfully conceived a child. After that, you're like, God can do anything. God, there's nothing God can't do. Abraham had gotten to the point where he learned God does what he says. When God says something, it happens, and God can do things that are beyond imagination. And God told me that through Isaac, my offspring will be named. So, what does Abraham do when God says, go and kill Isaac? How does he reconcile that? He's so convinced that God is going to give him a whole massive ocean of descendants through Isaac that this is his conclusion. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That's what was going on in Abraham's head. Okay, so go back to the painting, and Abraham's going up in the mountain, and he's telling the guys, hey, we're just going to go up, and we're going to offer something, and then we'll be back down. He meant that. He wasn't lying. He meant Isaac and I will be right back. You have to get into his head for a minute to understand this. In Abraham's mind, God is so powerful and so faithful that if he tells me to kill Isaac, then he must be about to raise Isaac from the ashes. So in Abraham's mind, he was about to to kill his son and then a brand new Phoenix Isaac 2.0 is about to rise up out of the ashes and come down and get busy and have a bunch of kids so I can have a bunch of grandkids. That's what's going on in Abraham's mind. Abraham was never intending to be cut off from his son. All the way, from the moment God told him what to do, he said, okay, God's going to resurrect my son in a couple days. This is going to be crazy. Let's do it. Okay? So God never intended that the blade would touch Isaac's throat, and Abraham never intended that his son was going to be lost from him. You see the difference in the story? The story has nothing to do with sacrifice. This is not a story for you to think about what God is going to require from you if if you love him. This story, this account is a celebration of faith. God is saying, look what happens when someone believes me. They're so convinced that I'll do what I say that they are willing to do something like Abraham did here. That is faith, is what God says to us. Do you see the difference? It changes everything. You don't have to read Genesis 22 and say, oh no, God, what are you going to take from me? You're supposed to read Genesis 22 and say, wow, look at this relationship between God and Abraham. Look at that faith that Abraham has. That's amazing. It's a celebration, and it takes the whole dark edge off of this story, and it takes away all of the threat of, like, of wickedness and immorality on the part of God. 
That's the first thing that happens when you are willing to, to let God speak for himself, but take in the whole context. You read the New Testament and the Old Testament. But there's more here as well. We are so quick to turn on God. We're so quick to say, God, I don't like that. I don't like being contradicted. I don't like being told not to do this. I don't like what you've done in my life. We're so quick to just kill him off and create a God of our own choosing. We're so quick to wrap our hands, our idolatrous hands around the things that we love. And what does God do? There's a preparation that is being laid here. This is a one-time event in Genesis 22, which is not going to be repeated because God is laying a foundation. First of all, he's laying a foundation of what faith looks like, and Hebrews 11 picks that up for us, and James. But secondly, he's picking up another story, which is how salvation works. In Romans 4, you can go and read that later, he goes in-depth, Paul, into Abraham's life And he explains what exactly happens here. you got to get this about the story. Abraham is an example for you of faith, but he is not an example for you of works. There are no works here in this story because God stops the work before it can get started, right? God stops the hand that is trying to work and ends it, and then God does his own work with his own provision in his own way, and then he says, by myself I have sworn, in verse 16. There's a promise, there's faith, and then there's blessing. That's how it works. There's a promise, there's faith, and then there's a blessing, and that's the pattern which is going to show us how to be saved. You don't come to God with all of your works, and then God says, okay, that's enough, now I'm happy. God looks at us, sees we can never do enough work. He provides the work that we can't do in Christ, and then we get to be a part of the promise. And if you're, if you're familiar with the story of Jesus, you might have picked up on some things in Genesis 22. For example, it begins in verse 2, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Do you remember how Jesus was introduced to the world? John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God, and then there's a baptism, and the dove comes down from heaven, and there's a voice from heaven. What does the voice say? This is my son, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. There's a father who loves desperately his son. And then we see that the son carries the instrument of his own demise to his death. You remember Jesus was forced to carry the cross, to carry the wood on his shoulders to the cross. Some people point out that there's three days from when Abraham is told that Isaac's going to die. It takes three days to get to the place they're going. It was three days that Jesus was in the grave. The mountain that they go to is the mountain where the temple was established in a few generations and the sacrificial system was established. 
that prepared the world for the Lamb of God. It goes on and on, and you begin to see this golden thread, Matthew Henry called it, which weaves its way through Genesis into the Old Testament narratives, into the Gospels, and then arrives at Jesus. This is about Jesus. That's kind of the point of your summer program, is you're learning to find Jesus in the Old Testament. So why this story why, why does the golden thread run from this story to Jesus on the cross? There's probably lots of reasons, but here's what I take out of it tonight. God, God does this to show faith and to show his provision, to show his promise and his blessings. And then what do we do? We criticize it. We reject it. We rebel against it. We preserve ourselves against it. We want to cut God off altogether in this story. We're like, what kind of monster would sacrifice his own kid? That's what I think. I would never sacrifice my daughter Elizabeth for any. None of you in this room, I'm sorry, Elizabeth is going to live. I just can't do it. I couldn't even pick up a knife with Elizabeth in mind. And we're like, what kind of monster would? And then what does God do? John 3.16, what does it say? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Isn't that nuts? I almost wonder if God's like, I want to bring out this reaction in you people. And then I'm going to show you who I really am. And God says, all you do is question me and criticize me and, and, and hold on to what you love, feel threatened by me, and here's what I'm going to do. You think a monster kills a son? Here's what I'm going to do for you. I love you so much that I'm going to give up my son for you. I'll do what you would never do, and I'm going to do it for you. It's amazing. It's incredible. Changes the way you look at Genesis chapter 22, doesn't it? Changes everything when you read it in context. If you're struggling with some of the Old Testament, if you're if you're stuck in Leviticus and you're like, I don't, you're like, where's the scissors? Come on, let's just let's just cut this out. Understanding the context of the storyline of the scriptures changes everything. It clarifies so much, and it it makes all that stuff from Kant and and that woman I read it. It's just What's the point of that? You don't need that. It's amazing. This God is amazing. I love this God. So here's the application for you this summer. There's a key word in Genesis 22 and Hebrews 11, and the word is promise. That's that's the whole point is Abraham had faith because he believed the promises. He learned enough in his life that he's like, whatever God says is going to happen. It's not my circumstances that tell me what's true. It's God's promises that tell me what's true. So what promises are you holding on to this summer? Are there some promises that you've taken and you said, this this is going to carry me through? Some friends of mine just tragically lost a family member. I was at the funeral with them last week, and they asked that the funeral sermon be about Romans 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's their promise. That's their promise. They're standing in the midst of terrible grief and they're ministering to others. 
They're showing such faith because they stand on the rock of Romans 8. We don't understand. We don't know what's happening in our world right now, but we do know this. Nothing, not even death, can separate us from the love of God. I want to encourage you to make the promises a key part of your walk with God. To memorize them, write them on note cards and stick them on your mirror, your dashboard, whatever you need to do, and just pound them into your heads. Okay, that's your one application, is to put the promises into work in your life. Let's pray. Campus Fellowship is a student organization designed to come alongside local churches to reach college campuses. If you found this encouraging, we invite you to subscribe or follow for more content or go to our website, campusfellowship.com, for other resources. Thanks for listening.